Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got you for an hour of science now, though. We promise to only speak about COVID about 25 times in that hour. We have a total of five guests virtually attending the studio today with a lot of different topics being covered. And hopefully, uh, I still have, they look like they're all there. My co-host for today, Dr. Ailey, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? I'm good. You're well. You look well. I am. I'm enjoying this rain. It's It's been a lovely wet start to April. It's yeah. been great. Yeah, that's cool. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm doing well, but I have to admit, I'm glad we're on radio because I really need a haircut. <laughs> I've, got like a pre, I've got like a pre-mullet going on. Yeah. Uh, just... yeah. See, I'm at that point with my hair where, uh, uh, you know, number two, right before the shower, does the job. It's not that hard. I don't need a hairdresser, but sad. It's sad. And Dr. Stacey, good morning. Hi, Dr. Shane. How are you going? Good. How's uh, downtown Kitan? It's very nice. Again, very autumnal, cool climate. It's it's great. We're enjoying enjoying this weather. Yeah. And bravo to you three for none of you having dodgy Zoom backgrounds. I'm getting sick of the dodgy Zoom backgrounds in these calls. Just going El Natural. Well, true, but it's a, it's a great excuse to show off your lovely photographs, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Next time I see someone who's got a Bali background, I'm going to go nuts. <laughs> uh, it's, it's all good. Let's dive into some science news, though. Ailey, do you want to start this off? Sure thing, Dr. Shane. So I've got a story this week um, about volcanoes, which cool. is pretty awesome. Everyone loves a volcano, uh, unless you're right near one, actually. So uh, that kind of was the problem for people in Hawaii a, a few years back, and that's what I'm going to speak about. So um, people might know of the uh, the Kilauea volcano on the big island of Hawaii. If, if some of some of us have lucky, been lucky enough to be there, it's really cool. It's um, It's been erupting for a long time. It actually started its latest eruption in 1983 and was going for 35 years. Uh, but then back in 2018, a couple of years ago, feels like a lot longer than that right now, but a couple of years ago, uh, it basically kind of shut down most of its eruptions, but you might recall it shut them down with a bang. So it was on the news for quite a long time. There were a lot of uh, explosive, explosive um, outbursts of the Kilauea volcano. Uh, these huge, what we call fissures erupted um, in, in what they call the rift zone. So the rift zone is kind of just basically where the, the earth's opening up and the magma's pouring out. Um, and there was one side of the big island of Hawaii that just got covered in lava. There were hundreds of homes that were right in the way of this, this, uh, this outflow. And um, I think it ended up covering about 35 square kilometres. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a big and important event for, for the people of Hawaii. But this new study that was published in Nature this week has uh, really tried to understand why the volcano was so explosive and why it happened when it happened. And so this is researchers from the University of Miami in the United States. And what they were looking at was the fact that just prior to this explosive event, um, kind of in the months and even in the year leading up to it, there was a lot of rain in Hawaii, a lot of rain. And you think, well, hang on a second, 
<laughs> wouldn't rain kind of, I don't know, well, lava's really hot, so it wouldn't dampen the lava, but, you know, how, how is rain related to, to lava? And the way it works is that there was basically near record rainfall um, and very high rainfall across all of Hawaii. And, in fact, there was um, the Kauai Island, which is not too far from the big island of Hawaii. Um, this is how much rainfall there was. They had their highest uh, record one-day rainfall, one day in the United States. Guess how much? 1.26 metres Oh, that's rain. a lot. It's disturbing when you uh, climate people speak in metres and not millimetres. Exactly. So just to, to give you a perspective, Melbourne's annual rainfall, we get about half of that in the course of a year. Yeah. A wet year, we get maybe 800 mil. So to get um, 1.26 metres of rain in 24 hours is a lot of water. Now, yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, it's the tropics, so you're going to get a lot. But the point was that because they had such high rainfall and they had a lot of it, what the scientists, um, they did some modelling and what they think might have happened is that all this rainfall has got to go somewhere, right? And you think, oh, it just flushes into the ocean. Well, the Hawaiian islands are mostly made of basalt. Basalt is a type of rock that basically acts like a big sponge, okay? It's very porous. You've got a lot of water that actually goes down into the ground instead of running off uh, into the oceans and whatnot. So, in fact, there was a lot of water uh, going into the earth itself uh, couple that with the fact that you've got a lot of uh, underground magma, you've got a lot of pressure building up. Um, what happens when you superheat water? Turns into steam, right? So all of a sudden uh, you've got a, a huge pressure buildup underneath the island and that's what they think happened. And, in fact, what they measured was the fact that the pressures under the island and before prior to the eruption were the, were the highest in 50 years. Wow. Um, yeah. And so all of a sudden... Uh, it just needs a trigger and or a, a little bit of a, a rift opening up and bang, um, off it goes. So that's why they think, uh, I mean, it's certainly not conclusive because it was just yeah. modelling, but yep. that's one of the reasons why they think it was so explosive. So I thought that nice. was really interesting. Yeah, very nice. Very interesting. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Ray, what do you got? Uh, bugs. It's yeah. all about bugs, Shane. So as we know, insects are critical for an awful lot of soil health, pollination, birds eat them, other predators do, they're important for wildlife. And a lot of studies have shown an alarming decline in our insect populations and their diversity. Um, but it, there's still a lot of questions about how big of a decline there is. And while there's been a lot of studies, nobody's taken a look back and said, well, what are all of these studies saying at once? So a nice set of researchers from the German Center for Integrative Biodiversity actually looked at 166 studies, which had surveyed about 1,600 sites across the globe to actually see what this decline was looking like. And and they, if you look at all of those studies as a whole, you still see decline, but perhaps not quite as large as some of the studies were predicting. They're seeing, you know, they're predicting something like about a 1% loss per year, whereas some of these other studies were talking 3 to 6%. Um, and that's for land insects. As it turns out, Insects associated with freshwater have actually increased in growth. Um, and they think that's probably two reasons. And one of them is good water quality has been something that's happened over the last 20 years, which is roughly when these studies have looked at. Um, the other one may be climate change and runoff. But um, the study was interesting, and they looked at how it was studied. Uh, and they said, yeah, things are, are going down, not quite as bad on average. But it was rather overly focused on North American studies. 
Um, and apparently it was much easier to, to survey protected land than it was the urbanized land where there's been intensive u- land use and people there where you actually see a larger decay. Hmm. And so it was, it, it was interesting to see them work across all of these studies to say, well, on a whole, it's not as bad as some of the smaller studies looked, but um, you know, we're looking at still maybe almost an 8 to 9% decline in land insects, which is, by the way, there's way more land insects than there are water insects because we're talking freshwater and there's not that much freshwater. There's a lot more land. Um, but, uh, well, we, we see this decline um, and it suggests there should be more study there and you could speculate it's actually a little bit worse because we haven't looked at intensive land use areas. I, I think the really exciting thing was um, that this is really interesting. It's you can mitigate these changes. That it, it, it's shown that really local the these drivers are very sensitive to local land use, and so that while we're seeing decline, unlike a lot of parts of climate change where we feel you know we have to tackle it all on a global scale, you effective strategies for mitigating land use and impact locally could be used um, to help affect insect changes locally. So. Hmm. This is something where policy locally in a government might be able to affect the outcome. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Insects are very important. I, I, I still struggle with the idea of how the devil people count them. Um, I know they do it statistically, but like uh, there's so many types and they breed so fast and they die so fast and everything. But uh, yeah, cool stuff. Dr. Stacy, uh, something tells me you're uh, working on COVID-19. I've been drinking copious amounts of bleach and shining a flesh lo- uh, torch up my butt, and I feel, <laughs> I feel safe. I feel safe. Is this, um, do you feel safe? <laughs> well, this is precisely what I wanted to talk about, Dr. Shane. It's been a pretty <laughs> bizarre week, has it not, <laughs> yeah. in the news for COVID? I mean, what could be wrong with drinking bleach? Come on. Oh, my God. Uh, Like I said a month or so ago, I've been really impressed during this pandemic with um, the the quality uh, and rapid research that's being sort of conducted globally and and shared um, around the world. And most of it is, like, very, very robust and it really helps Mm. us understand disease transmission. But, you know... Earlier this week, we had very bizarre and frankly dangerous statements made by President Donald Trump that absolutely ingesting or injecting disinfectant might be an interesting treatment for COVID and that perhaps we should look into that and try that out. So, I mean, that just floored like everybody, not just the scientists, but everybody. (laughs) Uh, But um, it was very funny. I came across a a day or two later across my desk um, in this spirit of sort of rapidly conducting research. I I see an article from the New England Journal of Medicine. I think I saw this one. one. Yeah, very important study. Very, very important study. It's one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world and and they put something together fairly quickly and um, um, so the title uh, is the use of commercial disinfectants to treat novel coronavirus um, now it's a very complicated paper and dr ray i might need you to help me um pick out some of the methodological challenges here but uh, they describe um this the, that they the research came about because of this statement of donald trump suggesting to uh potentially treat sars-cov with um injection or ingestion of um uh, of disinfectants so they conducted a study on the efficacy of of this approach in um in treating uh, SARS-CoV and now the methods section um very very complicated it says we looked at a bottle of bleach and we read the label and in the conclusions <laughs> straight to the conclusions says this will kill you don't do it 
<laughs> oh boy. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I mean I, you know, I, 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 I can confirm the the safety data sheet would also say that as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> I mean, it just really highlights the absurdity of such statements. And um, you know, we all need to be very, very careful about our sources of information. Um, but on the flip side, there's been some really great studies coming out in COVID this week. There's been a lot of work describing some of the outbreaks that are happening happening around um, the globe and particularly out, like, outbreaks occurring in the closed population settings. So mm. examples mm. of that has been the cruise ships, what we're yep. seeing in these really closed working environments or, or um, communal environments is that we're seeing really, really high attack rates. So um, an attack rate is one of those factors that we talk about epidemiologically to look at um, of all the people exposed or potentially exposed in a cohort or closed group, what proportion um, get uh, are infected. And so in the cruise ships, we're seeing really high attack rates of around 19, 20%. Um, the Diamond Princess um, had 3,700 people floating around on on waters and 712 of those were were positive, yeah. which is really, really huge. And similarly, um, in South Korea, they just published a piece of work in um, merging infectious diseases, describing a, a quite explosive outbreak among call centre workers um, with an attack rate of about 43% in um, call centre workers working in one level of a building. So these are really... Um, really high numbers and it really points to how the virus is behaving in these indoor closed setting environments. Mm. Well, it's interesting. Um, so I think a lot of things are going crazy at this point in time. I just got a message from uh, Professor Laura McKay, who's also one of our co-hosts. Um, she's wondering whether we could somehow post a photograph of Ray's mullet if it's gotten to that point. <laughs> I'm not sure how far things have gone, Ray. Is, it, uh, is there a scrunchie down the back there? I can't quite see from the... No, no, it, it's more pre-mullet, but um, <laughs> and, and, and my hair's wet, so I batted it down yeah. to look good for the Zoom. But... Uh, I, I, you know, I, my, I got to admit, I even get scared from my bedhead in the morning when I look in the mirror at this point. But uh, <laughs> thanks, Laura. Yeah, Shane, yeah. I've been I've been measuring the length of this outbreak by the um, by the length of my grey hairs. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing is how many more people actually have grey hairs than would otherwise have been, uh, shall we say, you know, just putting those behind the curtain um, to make sure that they're, they're not seen. But all of a sudden, everyone's learning just how many they've actually got, and it's a larger number. I suspect and they you know people get one gray hair and they start dyeing their hair religiously and then all of a sudden they've woken up one morning during the, the covid crisis and realized they've got 325 of them and where did they come from last time i looked there was only one so we're all in the same boat though i've seen some magnificent hair scenario walking around the streets you know when i go for a walk in the morning and that there's some great stuff going on and i've bought some shares in a scrunchy company because <laughs> i figure uh, everyone will be buying them soon there's no no getting away from it. You got to tie it back. So Wait, like this scrunchie like this 1995. Or? Hey, they're coming back, Ailey. Don't 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 mess with the scrunchie. You you ask the young folks, the millennials. They'll tell you scrunchies come back. So we're gonna have to stop there and uh, go to a music break because uh, our next guest is gonna be on another Zoom uh, virtual meeting in just a moment with us, talking about primary immunodeficiencies. Stacy Ray, Ailey, thanks so much for uh, being on the show this morning. Um, see you guys in a month, hopefully in person, but you never know. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Thanks, team. Thanks, see you then. Chat soon. Triple R. 
Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gego. It's 3 R. We have our first guest for today in our virtual studio. His name is Associate Professor Menno Van Zelm. He's the head of the B-Cell Differentiation Laboratory in the Department of Immunology and Pathology at Monash University. Menno, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Thank Ex- you for having me, Shane. Excellent. It's great to talk to you now. First of all, it's World Primary Immunodeficiency Week coming up. What's the plan there? What, what, we did this last year. We had this similar discussion with some other people. Um, what's what's um, primary immunodeficiency? What is that exactly? Yeah, so it's a, it's a very rare uh, disorder, and it's an inherited disorder of the immune system. So patients affected often already from a young age uh, suffer from recurrent and severe in- infections. And it can be, be very diverse, uh, really from uh, bacterial infections uh, to very severe viral infections or, or infections with what we call opportunistic agents. So these are um, microbes or bacteria that normally colonize our, our lungs uh, or especially our intestines without any issues. Uh, but because they have a problem in their immune system, and they cause severe infections. Now, I'm getting a little bit of break up there on your call. So, Mike, if you can switch your video off, that might clean things up uh, a little bit, and we'll we'll see how we go. We're just losing the losing the audio a bit. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of the, the primary immune deficiency week, how, you mentioned it's rare. How rare is this? We hear a bit about rare cancers and various other ailments that uh, fall into that category, but how many people have this sort of worldwide or in Australia? What are the numbers? Yeah, so the estimates uh, have, have risen over the past years, mostly because of, of better understanding of the diseases, and it's about one in 1,000 uh, to one in uh, 2,000 people are thought to suffer some form of an immunodeficiency. Hmm. Well, that, I mean, that's a fairly significant number. Like it's, I, I suppose when I think of rare, I'm thinking a much lower number, but one in a thousand is quite significant. Yes, and that's mostly because initially the, the really severe cases were picked up. So right. really in young children uh, ha- having problems uh, early and needing uh, strict therapy, uh, but now we see in, in uh, young adults uh, that there are uh, often recurrent issues and they're not picked up quickly because mm. it takes a while, of course, to identify hmm, uh, that's a lot of uh, sickness that's, that's really coming back. Uh, we should do further testing. Mm. So that was going to be my next question is often with these sorts of rare conditions, people end up on one of these, you know, referred to diagnostic odysseys where it can take many years for a diagnosis. How, how long does it typically take for someone with a primary immunodeficiency to get a proper diagnosis for that? Yeah, so the group that we studied uh, more recently in, in adults, we studied over 270 adults uh, in Melbourne across multiple centres. And we, we did a retrospective analysis, and the median diagnostic delay was nine years. Wow, that that's that's quite incredible. I mean, the cost there to the healthcare system must be extraordinary. Yes, exactly. So these these are com- these patients are coming back. These are the typical ones that. Yeah, it's always. Uh, I think you have twenty percent of the patients that take up eighty percent of of time because mm. they really have issues. 
Mm. Um, and, and indeed, that's, that's part of the reason why we do this Awareness Week, is to create awareness uh, amongst uh, people worldwide, and especially amongst healthcare, uh, to, to make sure we, we identify this and the proper tests are done to rule it out or to make sure, mm. yes, there is an immune deficiency, and, and treatment needs to be focused at supporting the immune system. Yeah. Now, uh, let's just talk about the immune system in these particular patients for a bit. What is actually, uh, you know, happening with the immune system? Is it still working to some degree or is it, you know, completely offline? I mean, what's it still doing, if, if anything? It can be anything. And that's the difficulty. The immune system has so many arms uh, in terms of cells and molecules that play a role uh, for different types uh, of pathogens. Uh, and we now find out that depending on what gene is affected, a specific component uh, is not functioning properly. And that can be indeed a deficiency. So what we often see is a deficiency in antibodies. So then there's an, uh, their patients are unable to neutralize, especially bacteria. But there can also be other uh, arms uh, affected. So it's, for instance, T cells needed for um, uh, viral and opportunistic uh, pathogens. But it can even be dysregulation so that the immune system is not fully impaired, uh, but really dysregulated and, and functions in an inappropriate way. So how do we treat it at the moment? So if someone is diagnosed with this and they, they end up, you know, catching some sort of, you know, whatever, I suppose, um, how, do we, how do we treat them? Yeah, so originally this was purely symptomatic, so really treating the infections. Mm-hmm. Um, with more understanding, we, we know now that if there's an antibody defect, we can supplement patients with blood products, so with uh, immunoglobulins from healthy donors. Um, the most severe cases where there's really a defect in, in T-cell immunity, they require uh, stem cell transplantation mm-hmm. to really have uh, functional cells uh, of the immune system from a healthy donor. Um, and we're, we're coming now into the challenge to treat dysregulation of the immune system. Mm. And for that, we really need a genetic diagnosis to know what gene is affected, what immunological pathway is, is functioning incorrectly, and uh, with all the advances now in, in terms of biologicals and, and products that treat specific molecules, we can apply that to these patients. Mm. And Mena, what exactly are you working on down there at uh, Monash? What's the, what's the goal of your work? So we're trying to understand uh, what is wrong uh, with patients. And, and we're in a little bit of a transition phase, I think, in studying these disorders. Uh, traditionally, it's really been specific target gene analysis based on what we know of the immune system. We, we make educated guesses of what gene is affected. Now we have uh, whole exome analysis uh, tools where we can study a lot of genes in an individual. The problem now is we get a lot of results and we don't know yet what it means because we don't know the function of all the genes. And we have to link genes that we don't know uh, with a disease uh, phenotype. And, and our work is really uh, focused on, on linking those two. What mm. does a genetic variant do uh, really uh, on the molecular level and how does that lead uh, to an impaired immune response? 
Mm. And have you had any sort of, I suppose, discussions with colleagues or the like with regards to the, the current pandemic and what that means for people with these primary immunodeficiencies? I mean, it seems to me like this would be a pretty hard hit for them to, to deal with, especially given, as you say, we, we have nothing really to, to treat the actual condition in, at the moment. No, so we're keeping an eye out on, on what happens to the to the patients. So so I work closely with the clinicians at the Alfred Hospital. Mm-hmm. Of course, they try as much as possible not to have patients come in if it's not needed. Um, so far, I've not heard of any any cases where where patients have had a very severe form of disease. Of course, they are at high risk. Mm-hmm. Um, there there was now an early study in Europe. Uh, where they in, in Italy actually, where they had a few patients that they uh, treat infected uh, with COVID-19, a few of which had severe disease and a few of which had not. Mm-hmm. I don't think it really uh, mattered whether they made their own antibodies or not. It was really the the inflammatory problem. So again, mm-hmm. the immune dysregulation that yep. they brought. Hmm. Well, look, it's a it's an area that's uh, you know one we're going to talk a bit more about today. We've got a couple of patients on uh, after the break, but Menno, thanks so much for chatting to us. Good luck with the ongoing work. It's um, it's certainly good to hear you know, especially in these rare cases that good work's going on because um, I suspect many of them are underfunded and and they don't affect as many people as some ailments. But boy, when they get affected, they are affected in in a hard way. So thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Go Go. All right, no problem. Have a good day. Thank you. That was Associate Professor Menno Van Zelm, who is the head of the B-Cell Differentiation Laboratory in the Department of Immunology and Pathology at Monash University. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music, and I'll be back with two patients uh, who we actually spoke to about a year ago. Uh, one of them is a lovely um, daughter of, of the other, and uh, we had a great chat last year, so hopefully we'll have another good talk about uh, what it means to have a primary immunodeficiency. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go on 3RRR. I am very excited to uh, let you know that in our virtual studio today, we have uh, two guests that we spoke to last year, Louise and May Driscoll. Hello, you two. How are you going? Good. Hello. Good. Thanks, Shane. It's great to speak to you again. Now, we had you on last year because we were talking about primary immunodeficiencies, and this is something that unfortunately you both have. Um, Louise, I might get you to start because um, you've obviously you've had it for a while. I mean, when were you diagnosed with this condition? So I was diagnosed around the age of thirty, mm-hmm. so about fourteen years ago, um, and up until that point, I'd had lots of infections on and off throughout my childhood and then um, my 20s. Mm -hmm. And May, how old are you now? Six. Six. You were five when you first came on radio. That's pretty impressive, you know. Pretty impressive. I'm six and a half. Oh, I'm sorry. You're six and a half. Now, have you been sick? You've been a bit sick over the last few years? Yeah. Yeah? What's that been like? What's it been like? Uh, I don't know. What have you had to do? What have you had to do? Um, do my physio two times a day. Oh, physio twice a day. That's quite a lot. Yeah. And And do you like doctors or do they annoy you now because you have to see them too often? Um, I don't know. 
good good answer um <laughs> Uh, what, what what's it like, Louise, for you, sort of maintaining May's health? I mean, what what do you have to do? Um, so we actually, I was saying to May that she's probably a bit of an expert at the moment. So hand hygiene is a big one. So we're oh, yeah. always using <laughs> so um, lots of hand sanitizer. Just avoiding people who are unwell is, um, and also May has an infusion once a week um, into yep. her tummy, and that I do at home. That helps her. That gives her the antibodies to then help her fight infections. Right, May. How long do you have to wash your hands for? What's a good What's a good time? Twenty seconds. Twenty seconds. Yeah, and you know everyone's having to do that now because everyone's getting sick. Did you Did you realize that? Yeah. So you've been teaching people how to wash their hands properly. Yes. You're the expert, huh? Um, and in terms of um, May's sort of longer-term diagnosis, like what 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 does it look like in terms as she gets older? Does the treatment regime change for her at all, Louise, or is it sort of more of the same? Um, I think it would be pretty much the same. Well, May also has bronchiectasis, so she has damage to her lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, and that's stable at the moment. Hopefully, we can keep it that way by the um, the physiotherapy that we do. Um, but also, I guess with common variable immune deficiency, which is what we both have, um, that you can have other sorts of complications like arthritis, which is what I have, um, and other sort of inflammatory things happening in the body. Mm. Um, but we just have to continue to be really careful and mindful um, of avoiding people that are unwell. And obviously May also has cystic fibrosis, so she has that extra complication on top of her CBID. Yeah. It's here as well. And what what's schooling like? I mean, is that done from home, or are you? I mean, I know everyone's at home at the moment, but normally, are you able to to go to school, May? Or? Are you able to go to school, May? Yeah. No, no. Not at the moment. Not at the no. moment, huh? Yeah. Uh, do you miss that? Not really. Not really. <laughs> Too many annoying kids. Yeah. Yeah. Rather stay home with mum. Mum take care of your school. Yeah. <laughs> is there um is there a, a, i mean you must have a very unique insight you know whenever we talk about vaccinations and things of this nature and people arc up about not vaccinating their children i mean you're you're on the front line there and one of the things i often talk about on air um louise is that we're often not doing it for ourselves but doing it for those who who can't get vaccinations i mean where do you stand in terms of the vaccination scenario can you and may be vaccinated or is that something that just doesn't function well in your bodies yeah, there's no real point of us being vaccinated because our body won't respond mm-hmm. to most vaccinations. To some, we do get the flu shot. Um, so, yeah, we really are reliant on the rest of the community having their vaccinations to sort of keep us safe. Yeah. Um, so the tricky one, isn't it, to kind of, you know, ask other people to do the right thing to support, you know, the more vulnerable members of the community. Yeah, yeah, it's a big call. In terms of your um, physiotherapy each day, May, what sort of stuff do you have to do? I need to do jumping off the my bed. Jumping off your bed? That's no, probably... the trampoline. Oh, on the trampoline, okay. And what does that do? That help you with your breathing and and everything? Does it? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Louise, I think um, it sounds like things are going well. She sounds healthy and happy and and doing okay. Is um, yeah, are you have you had any setbacks in the last year since we we spoke to you, or is everything going really well? 
It's going well. We've obviously had a few hospital admissions, but mm-hmm. thankfully May's been well enough that we could do it as hospital in the home. Yep. Um, hopefully that will continue. May's got another hospital admission coming up at the end of May and we're just avoiding hospitals obviously as much as possible at the yeah. moment. So we'll do that as hospital in the home, but that's keeping May pretty stable and well. And do you, do you have sort of fairly comprehensive sort of care management there from the medical staff? I mean, she's obviously a very special case and requires you know, a lot of additional support. I mean, what, what sort of, do, do you get good support there from, from the various hospitals? We do. We're at Mays at the Royal Children's and they're amazing. Yeah. So she's under immunology and respiratory team and she's got a few other specialists that she's under as well. Yep. And she couldn't be any looked after really well i think i think you two are great for um promoting primary immunoefficiency week and and certainly it's something that you know talking to you each year is great we i'm hoping that we'll watch may grow up and we'll be able to have a chat to her each year about uh about this and may when you're when you're about 15 maybe you can you can come in and and you know talk a lot more on the show does that sound like a good idea yeah did you enjoy coming in last year to the studio Yes. We're gonna we're gonna do it again next year. When everyone's back to normal, we'll get you to come back into the studio next week. Does that sound like a good idea? Yes. Yeah. Sorry we had to do this one by, by video. It's okay. That's okay. I think you're safer there anyway, keeping away from all these dirty people at the station who might be infecting you. Who knows what they've got? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> well, look, it's been great chatting to you both again. Thanks so much for uh, for making the time. And look, good good luck. I hope uh, things calm down and and it gets back to the point where you can calmly go into hospitals without you know being so concerned. Although I hear there's there's not many people there compared to normal. So they are very quiet. Yeah, good parking, good parking. So yes. if uh, if you do need to go in, at least you you can isolate yourself. And um, I, I know I, I know someone who had a had a procedure recently. They were in the emergency category and they apparently saw no one but hospital staff for for a big part of their visit which was quite pleasant so i think uh yeah all right well take care you two and uh we will um we'll chat again in a year if that's okay with you may yeah and you'll be how old will you be then yes how old will you be next year Uh, probably seven seven probably seven okay we'll see how we go all right thanks guys (laughs) thank you thanks louise great to talk to you bye bye Folks, that was Louise and May Driscoll, two of the patients who have primary immunodeficiencies, and we spoke to them last year as well, which was uh, a particular pleasure, I think, uh, for me, being able to, when little May was in the studio, she was very well behaved, and she was a great guest. We're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in a little bit with our final guest for today. On a different topic, we're going to be talking about um, some of the amazing work run by La Trobe University on some of the earliest known humans and uh, what they managed to piece together there. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. We have our next two guests on the line now. They are Dr. Angeline Lease and Jesse Martin. They are both PhD students in the Department of Archaeology and History at La Trobe University. Good morning, both. How are you going? Good, thanks, Shane. Pleasure to be with you. Lockdown. Good, how are you? Both locked down. Yes, yes, stuck here at home. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Angeline, you just finished your PhD. You've just uh, formally a doctor. That's right, yeah. Actually, I got the news the same week this paper came out, so it was, that was a big week for me. <laughs> oh, fantastic, fantastic. And, uh, Jesse, you got a little bit to go? I do, yeah. I've got another year and a half to go, which might turn out being a little longer with now not being able to travel overseas, but we'll see. Uh, take your time, I say. You know, universities all... I, look, 
We interviewed John Dewar, the Vice Chancellor at Latrobe. If you have any problems with those extensions, just give us a call. We'll, we'll give them a buzz. Uh, I'm sure Latrobe's actually doing treating their, their staff and students very well from what I can tell. So I suspect you're in a good place. Now, you have been working um, collectively on some of the earliest known sort of human remains. So, um, Angeline, should we start with you? I mean, talk us through what this project was. What were you trying to, to find? Well, it's a funny question because you never you never really know what you're going to find when you put the put the trowel in the ground. So when I came onto this site um, eight years ago now, uh, we knew that we had um, a species of early human called Paranthus robustus. Now that's not in our direct lineage; it's kind of an offshoot, a cousin branch, um, and we knew that we probably had some species within our lineage, but we didn't know of what exactly that was going to be. So when we stumbled across this one, because you're always looking for something that's going to clarify it, something that's going to answer the question, but actually finding it takes a little bit of luck. Um, mm. So, yeah, it was, it was very exciting. Yeah. And in, in terms of – so – in terms of what you were, you were looking at, are these samples that we had locally or samples you had to just go and find? What, what was the deal there? Well, there's, there's quite a number of cave sites in South Africa in this little area just north of Johannesburg that have preserved over the last, or returned over the last 50 years, some of the most important fossils um, to, to help us unravel the human story. So we knew that we were looking in the right place. Um, but you never quite know what you're going to find in these caves because they're all different dates. Um, once we started doing some of the dating work, our colleague and supervisor, Andy Herries at the Trobe, knew that our cave dated to around 2 million years, which is a really interesting time in human evolution. It's, it's perhaps when our ancestors first start looking, sounding, and perhaps behaving more like us, something more that would be recognisable to us as distinctly human. So we were hoping uh, that we would be able to find some fossils that related to that very early species um, that we know very little about. Hmm. And uh, let, let's just talk about, you know, that branching of species and so forth for a moment. Um, just bring people up to speed on where we are in our knowledge of, you know, how far back we have to go before we're connected up and so forth and how unique we were back then and how many different species there were back then because it, this, this story has changed quite radically over the last probably 10, 15 years. Yes, uniquely within science, um, paleoanthropology is relatively data poor. We can't just go out and generate more data when we want to answer a different question. We have to find sites and we have to find fossils. So historically, um, it's been true, and it probably still is, that every time we find a new fossil, it certainly has the potential to change our understanding of how we, we came to be. Um, that's definitely true also in relation to um, the fossil that we describe in, in our recent paper. Uh, perhaps why it's most important is um, one of the species we know about reasonably well, Homo erectus, uh, lived for a very long time, probably about a million years, and travelled all around the world. We find it in Southeast Asia, we find it in Africa, and we find it in um, Europe as well. Uh, but we don't know exactly when that first species first arrived on the landscape. We don't know when it first evolved. Uh, and I would probably say it would be fair that most of our colleagues would agree that Homo erectus is probably uh, the oldest uh, ancestor that we'd be somewhat confident is a direct ancestor. So mm -hmm. finding the first evidence for that species is, is quite a significant thing because it tells us about the timing of the evolution of our first um, 
recognisable ancestor and also what kind of landscape it was living in and, and what else it was living on the landscape with. Mm. And it was perhaps a little unexpected because we did know at this time period that we had um, multiple different species, as we mentioned in our paper, and as, as you just mentioned, um, we already had Paranthus robustus and Australopithecus africanus. Both of these are more uh, primitive-looking species. Mm. And your the 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 find that you had, as I understand, had 150 individual pieces. Now, there's a lot of people at home at the moment doing jigsaws, right? Um, but generally, they know what the picture's supposed to look like at the end. How how the devil do you like reconstruct something out of 100 and you know 50 sort of I, I suppose somewhat damaged, fragmented, worn down pieces? How do you how do you do that? Very, very slowly and very, very carefully. <laughs> um, but, but you've described it perfectly. It really is just a big three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. Um, you certainly don't have the picture of what it's supposed to look like, but to follow the metaphor, you're also missing a good portion of the pieces. Uh, so when we started putting this back together, really uh, you, you work from the biggest bits to the smallest bits. You try and get, like with a jigsaw puzzle, some of the more distinct parts together. And from that, you can build the smaller parts. But the other part to the, to the story, again, a bit unlike a jigsaw puzzle, is the largest of the pieces that we had were probably the size of about a 50-cent piece. The smallest of the pieces would have been, at best, a third of your uh, small fingernail. So we really are dealing with uh, some very, very small fragments. They were nicely preserved, and really it's just an exercise in patience Mm. Uh, and in perseverance uh, to get it all back together and also ensuring, of course, when you excavate it, that uh, you get every tiny little piece, which can turn out um, to be quite significant when you start putting the thing back together. Yeah. Now, um, Angelina, I wanted to ask you about the excavation stuff because I, I suspect a lot of people have in their heads the idea of you're out there with a shovel, but I suspect you're probably more often out there with a brush. Is that is that right? How do you how do you get this stuff? Like, first of all, you're in this cave, there's a mound of dirt or a wall or something, and you've thought, I'm going to dig or brush or something. I mean, talk, talk me through that because that seems like a, a fairly difficult process. It is. There, there's no shovels allowed. No shovels allowed on our site. Um, and the way it works is because these caves are filled up in concreted, a lot of the sediment is hard as rock. Um, and you can really only work where it decalcifies, turns back into soft sediment. So generally we're using um, kind of like little wooden skewers, a bit bigger than a toothpick and little paintbrushes. Um, and this one, this specimen particularly was, rather than digging down onto it, it was in one of the walls. So we're kind of digging kind of horizontally towards it, um, which presents its own difficulties because you, you, uh, you, you don't have as clear of a view of it when you're trying to come down on it and clear around it. Um, but, you know, we have, we, we, you work slowly and carefully and we use conservators, conservators glue in the field. Um, but it's always, you never really know what's under the next brush and you mm. inevitably think you're ready to cut around the specimen and just to find more bone. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of the dating, I mean, just get my head around this, but carbon dating is good till about 50,000 years, I think. So are you using uranium dating? Is that the, is that the way you date these, these areas? Yeah, so we've actually used a few different dating techniques on this site just because we wanted to be very sure and the stratigraphy of these cave sites can be quite complex. 
I'll premise this with um, the fact that this is not our area. There's other authors on this paper who primarily work on this part of the research, but we did use uranium lead on the site. We also used um, paleomagnetism and electron spin resonance. So these three different techniques, so uh, they, they all luckily came to, came out in, agree in agreement, mm. but the, um, the ESR was able to date kind of closest in contact context, and I mean um, actual distance from the specimen, where the uranium lead and the paleomag was used to kind of date the bounding brackets of the whole, the date of the whole site. Mm. And one of the things that's unique about Drummond is we, we know about these sites in South Africa because at the end of the 19th century, they were mined. Uh, for stalagmites. So most of them uh, have been blown to bits. So even if you can date a particular rock or a particular tooth, you have no idea how that rock or that tooth relates to the fossil that you found. And one of the really, I suppose, uh, fortuitous things about Drimon for us is that while we have sections of the site that are out of context, we have big chunks of the site that are still as they were when they would have been laid down two million years ago. And happily, these two crania in this paper were from very close to or within those still in situ contexts. So when we have a date, we can be pretty confident that it's the correct date for the fossil that we're actually wanting to talk mm. about. And just quickly before we go, so this has pushed back the timing on when we first thought we were a separate species. Is that right? Yeah, so what essentially what we were able to, to demonstrate with one of the cranium, the DNH134 crania, is that the first occurrence of Homo erectus is around about 2 million years ago. Now, that's fully 200,000 years earlier than we previously thought mm. from some sites in Demonese. And the other unique thing, too, is that prior to the discovery of this fossil, we actually had no unequivocal evidence that Homo erectus occurred in South Africa at all. So in some sense, it's it's really interesting that we now know Homo erectus evolved earlier. But in some ways, the last place we might have expected to find that evidence would have been in South Africa. Yeah. Oh, look, it's fantastic stuff. Congratulations, both of you. It's really interesting work. And it's great hearing Latrobe's doing this. You know, I think uh, a lot of people aren't aware of just how much of this work is being done You know, by some of our local researchers, even though these caves are a long way away, the, the, the hard yard is being done here. Um, Angeline, congratulations again on getting your PhD. That's, that's fabulous. And uh, Jesse, you've got a little bit of work to do, but... Uh, Hey, man, you can't expect too much during the pandemic. Just chill out, watch the Netflix, you know? Absolutely. I'll read, I'll read lots of papers. <laughs> I've heard people giving that advice, and I think it's, it's dreadful. Uh, I think I'd poke my own eye out after about a week of that. But um, read, uh, give yourself a challenge of reading two papers between now and when we can go back outside. That might be a good way to go. Thank, thank you both for being a uh, guest today on Einstein and Go Go. Good luck with the ongoing work. It sounds uh, fascinating, and I'm glad to hear there's no shovels allowed. Thank, you, Thank you. Thanks both. Good to talk to you. Uh, that was um, Dr. Angeline Least and Jesse Martin from the Department of Archaeology and History at La Trobe University. One doing a PhD and one just having finished a PhD. Uh, we are almost out of time, so I'm going to uh, have to hand over in a minute to the team from Eat It. I understand that Cam's going to burst into my studio and take over in just a moment, as he often does. Uh, I hope you've had a good Sunday so far. 
A lot of good programming coming up. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday, folks. If you manage to go for a walk, fantastic. Otherwise, do not ingest any cleaning products. They are not good for you. Uh, trust me, I was a scientist and still know a lot about science, but you don't need to know much to know that. Thanks for listening to RRR. Chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of RRR's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.